grateful for that. That's like the one thing that has been a bonus. I had been teaching at Parsons and we switched to remote teaching there. So that's going to continue this year, which is great. I've been there for 15 years now and it's awesome. But because so many things are remote anyway, I'm also going to be moderating uh, a class at the Center for Cartoon Studies because suddenly I don't need to be there to teach there. So I haven't taught there since like 2011, but I love it up there. Everybody is so dedicated. They're having me do that. So the bonus is I get to work with them again, even though that's like the only thing I think that's improved <laughs> with, with Zoom. I mean, Zoom is, Zoom is, is great and a godsend, but I mean, just with the, with the whole pandemic, being able to, to, to go back to CCS and be involved with them again is, is, is like the benefit. You said moderate a class. It's a, it's a visiting artist class. So um, I'm technically teaching it, but basically it's me and the facilitator at the school coordinating the guests. And then uh, I lead the class and I lead the discussion with the guest artist. And I sometimes I'll do a Q&A with them or I'll moderate the Q&A with the, with the students. So since the guests also won't be in Vermont, they realize that I didn't have to be in Vermont either. <laughs> so... They're actually doing some classes that are meeting in person, which is amazing. No, none of my, I, I don't know any schools in New York City that are doing that right now. I'm sure there are some, but none that I'm involved with or Criota's involved with are doing that. But in Vermont, they're doing some, some classes in person. But, but this class, because it's guests every week, uh, and I love, I love you know, hosting, so this is a perfect class for me to do. Anyway, so it just worked out. What are some of the considerations? I mean, how, how do you actually adapt uh, an art class to a Zoom call? One thing, I mean, there's, I'm reading so much about this now. You're kind of retraining yourself on how to do it. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the Center for Cartoon Studies has like a whole set of guidelines and suggestions on how to lead a class. And then at Parsons, uh, they have you do a training, so you're familiar with Zoom. And we kind of got thrown into this in April of, of last semester when everything shut down. We learned a little bit then and we learned as we go on, but generally how I've been doing it, everybody's got a different way, but generally how I've been doing it is I meet with the class for an hour collectively. And then uh, often people will break out into what they call breakout rooms. So the students will meet individually to talk among themselves about their projects. And then I will have individual meetings with them one-on-one -on -one for the rest of the class. If there's a big crit, we might spend three hours together where people share their screens and share their work that way. A lot of the classes that I'm teaching involve having the students keep some sort of blog online. So even when we were meeting in person, the blog was a way for me to keep up with their work because with 15 students in a three hour class, you can't always meet with everyone. So the blog would be a way for them to post what they're doing every week. And I would send them feedback either in email or I would make sure I checked in with them long enough to at least say, I saw what you're working on you know, this is coming along great, or if you need help here, here are some suggestions. So a lot of the classes I teach um, are seniors, and, and those students are, are often like on their own track, making their own projects, and are, um, you know, sustaining themselves with, with input. For me, it's almost like an independent study class in some ways. So meeting with them on Zoom it's never as good, but it's great that we get to do that. And, um, you know, th having the visual there is, is awesome. I, you know, I started teaching in 2005. If I'd be doing cell phone calls with people if we were, <laughs> if we were in a lockdown then. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty good. I mean, I'm teaching a, I'm teaching a, um, I'm very excited. I'm co-teaching a class on performance as it relates to illustration. I'm co-teaching with uh, Jonathan Rosen, who does a lot of like projection and, and, and live video mixing work. So we're thinking even if the school isn't open in April or May, I mean, maybe it will be. I, I, I don't want to be too overly optimistic, but we're thinking even if it doesn't open, maybe we can do some sort of outdoor projection event. <laughs> People can be socially distanced in a park and watching a screen, you know, like maybe there's some way to do some sort of like group event that is distanced enough, but we can still have some aspects of the, of the work. So this is like the carousel class. In a way, yeah. I mean, I, the, the department approached me about being involved in a performance class. And I was like, yes, absolutely. I've really wanted to do something like that with Parsons. And certainly over the years, there's so many ways of, of 
integrating illustration into performance, whether it's as simple as reading, reading along with your comic slideshow, but then there's also like live drawing and live painting, which I do a lot of. And then what Jonathan does often is like video mixing of existing materials and animations that he makes, you know, along with live musicians, um, you know, even just to just even just the animations projected behind like operas or other events that you know um kind of use the illustration as a supplementary material and ben catcher's been doing this for oh gosh at least 20 years i think now i've seen him do it a few times with with a, a live musician they actually yeah. like write a yeah, score yeah. i mean it's like it's like yeah. it's like watching theater oh it's yeah it's totally theater with with like the supplement of the drawings i mean the great thing about his pieces that he writes them so that the the storylines of his of his plays have the same circuitous free form i mean it's all work it's all locked in but it has this sense of improvisation although it's all completely locked in he's got the drawings all made and everything but that that sort of that sort of winding pathway that his stories can take is all totally present in the theater experience so it's a really an immersion into his storytelling style um, with live actors and musicians yeah it's really something you know, when we'll get back to those possibilities again, I don't know, but I've done carousel on Zoom over the summer. I hope to do more. I will be doing more of that in September. So, you know, we're all trying to make do and, and figure out ways to kind of keep these communal events going. I think that's super important. I think it's interesting that they saw enough value in, in this idea of performance and comics really turned it into its own course. You know, do, do you think that there's really there's enough of a critical mass there that it's becoming a movement in and of itself. Yeah. We'll see how it's, re- we'll see how it's received by the students. I mean, the thing is there's so many ways to approach it and this is a brand new class. So I don't have anything worked out. Jonathan and I still have so many details to work out, but there's so many ways to sort of integrate visuals into, into performance or theater. I mean, it, it really could be TikTok. I mean, there's no, there, there's any way to incorporate like time plus visuals into some sort of performance. Uh, I think there's enough ways to approach it that it'll be interesting. The class is actually um, subtitled music slash performance. So I think music will be an aspect of it. I suspect some students might just want to make animations based on soundtracks that maybe they invent or their friends invent. invent. So, you know, there's lots of ways in um, what I really appreciate about Parsons right now is that experimentation is a big part of what some of the classes are about. So some of the classes are very structured around specific ideas of what you know, a more traditional idea of illustration is, but there's obviously a lot of stuff that's changing in the world <laughs> to put it mildly so having classes that can kind of open it up to new forms is great and and um you know this is one section that some juniors will be taking other juniors will be taking sections on animation and 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 like um um, protest art and uh like other forms of of getting guerrilla art in different areas i don't i'm not remembering the names of all the classes but the idea is all these classes will have different focus foci Focal points? I like foci. The, the classes might meet together and then exchange ideas. So it's really an open, it's really an open forum. And I think some of the students may be more or less open to that idea, but I think there's ways to, to take what we discuss in these classes and, and, and plug it into different, into different forms. So um, it's very heady, <laughs> even as I'm describing it. This class starts in about... 10 weeks. So ask me, ask me again in, in the spring, but you know, it, it's evolving. Do you get a sense that you're approaching it differently given the current circumstances that you're thinking of it more in terms of what can be done online and socially? I can't see how that won't be a part of it. it won't, won't be a piece of it, but you know, if students want to make a video of themselves performing in their apartment every week and send that to me, I probably will be up for that. You know, like it might, it may be a performative thing, even if they're doing it without an audience. So it could be that way, but I, I obviously could see it being like very animation based or being based in forms that, um, that are more naturally shared um, 
online on Vimeo or, or, or other format. So we'll kind of see how it shakes out. Seems like, you know, there, there is an opportunity for you to really kind of rethink what you're doing, the way you're combining. I mean, you know, you said, you said that you were doing Zoom before, but I suspect that at least in the kind of early stages, it's really like, let's take what we do in person at Carousel, and just do a Zoom version of it. Right. Obviously like easier said than done. And obviously this is a conversation that like, Scott McLeod has been having for you know two decades at this point about the the opportunities of of making comics online, but the infinite Zoom call. Yeah, exactly. Good God, help us. <laughs> Perhaps at least along the way, you will start to discover some of these opportunities. Have you found anything? having done Carousel up to this point that you perhaps like opened a new avenue? Well, one thing that was really fascinating with the show that we did, which is on YouTube now, I did it with Dixon Place, which is the theater that I normally do shows with in person, but they, they've been hosting, hosting a lot of virtual shows. The thing that was interesting and not exactly what I expected to be different, but we had the event and then we, we just uh, opened up the, the call up to questions. So people, we had a Q&A that lasted an hour um, and a lot of people were talking about like a lot of political issues, um, a lot of like stuff that was very topical and of the moment. And that was really interesting because, you know, my fa- maybe my favorite part of doing Carousel is hanging out in a bar afterwards and talking to people. But doing it, doing it in, uh, doing it on Zoom where more people could participate and and everyone could hear the conversation that was happening, uh, and people seemed really hungry to have that conversation. Uh, because a lot of the work was was autobiographical and again topical because we did it in July, so everything was just you know you know all everyone 's emotions are are just a little heightened now so uh, it was a great show, and then the conversation was awesome. I would love to integrate more stuff into the show itself, but having that opportunity to have that discussion that way, and maybe people being more comfortable with hanging out longer because <laughs> uh, they 're at home. Uh, and could take their shoes off would, um, you know, was an interesting, was an interesting mix. Um, and, uh, you know, there were technical issues, a lot on my end, just trying to figure things out. But, you know, there's ways on Zoom to like, let people draw on images that are being projected. Obviously, that's what Zoom bombing is all about. But you can organize it so that people could collaborate on a drawing live. This is something that Mayel Dolivu did in my show. Um, in, uh, oh gosh, when was it? I guess it was December. Good Lord. It was in December. She did it live with another artist and, um, she and I have been talking about doing it more online. Um, and that's a very rudimentary thing to start thinking about, but, but I'm sure there are other ways to make collaborations. Um, certainly one thing that was awesome about the show in July was we had, uh, people from out of town who wouldn't have been able to participate before. So we had Joel Christian Gill and we had uh, Bianca Yunus who'd never done the show before and they were great and I knew that they would bring a new energy to it. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope people will sort of push the boundaries. I certainly have been trying to make Carousel a little broader than just uh, comics readings, although that's a big part of what I do, but I've been wanting to sort of like push what can happen in the space, in the physical space, I'm sure we'll do more of that online as well. You mentioned that one of the elements of, of the Parsons classes is this idea of protest. And, and, you know, I suspect that that will kind of like seep its way into the performance that people are doing on your side as well. It's something you've been thinking a lot about lately. I mean, your, your, <laughs> your comics have taken a decidedly more political turn over the last few years. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I didn't want them to. <laughs> but if circumstances were different, I wouldn't have felt maybe obliged to. So, right. I mean, I, I, you know, I think some people see terms and conditions as part of that shift. I don't really see that necessarily. What was the impetus behind terms and conditions? Was it just to get people to read the fine print? Yeah. <laughs> terms and conditions was definitely like a turning point for me in terms of my comics. You know, I... Um, I loved and still love, I think, doing what I was doing before then, which was adapting literary classics into comics forms. Um, But the way I was making my comics was uh, gruelingly time-consuming, and I sort of felt like the world of comics had sort of shifted 
uh, which happens when you've been working for 20 years. And I felt like I needed a new way of approaching making comics. The first Masterpiece Comics was like decades of the making, right? Yes. Yeah. It took me 20 years to do that. And I was terrified that it would take me another 20 years to do another book. Whatever was next. Yeah. So I was really trying to find a new way to make comics. And I think Terms really has affected the way I've made stuff since. But the idea with Terms was, let me make a graphic novel for the first time. Let me make a long form comic. People use graphic novel to mean short form comics, which is fine. But I was sort of thinking about like the form that, com that comics are read today. And they tend to be long form comics, comics over 100 pages that people uh, digest in a sitting or at least in, within, within, within covers, within like a single like book. Um, so I wanted to make a graphic novel. Uh, the terms uh, of service of the iTunes uh, seemed like a funny idea. And that was really enough for me. So I was, I was sort of approaching just it, just as, as an absurd idea, maybe as a lark, as a way to sort of break my habit of the way I was working. But when the book came out, it was very well received and on some level perceived as kind of a protest about against Apple, maybe as like, oh, finally, a way people will read these. Which are immediately out of date, the, the, like the minute you're actually just drawing them, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which is another thing, another reason I like classics is because they're kind of, they're kind of... Uh, held in amber but the terms i mean i even updated it as i was drawing it i updated it at least twice in major ways before it was published and then as soon as it was published it was reinvented entirely but yeah. that's fine <laughs> you, you said you were doing it kind of as a lark but you know that that's a, a long time to commit to a lark was there ever a moment in the middle when you just sort of like am i really going to keep doing this for 100 pages well i was by the time I had gotten like 25 pages done, I was like, this is, this is something. Uh, I, I certainly wasn't doing it. I didn't pitch it to Drawn and Quarterly until I had finished the black and white version. You never felt like you, you had made a huge mistake by committing that time to it? No, I really, I really needed to find a new way to work. I really needed to find a different approach. And because every page of it is based on an existing comic, it was kind of a an excuse to play with stuff that was already out there. And, and it, was, it was generally a fun assignment for myself. Um, and, the, and the response was good enough. And I wasn't, it, I was sort of doing it in my spare time. It wasn't my, I wasn't, I wasn't, I hadn't put aside a year of my life and stopped taking work <laughs> to do it. In that respect though, in the respect of every page being based on different comic, it's not entirely dissimilar from what you were doing before. The amount of time you're, you're spending uh, devoting to each specific style is obviously shorter, but it is a kind of a natural extension of Masterpiece Comics, at least in that respect. Right, right. Well, I, I, feel like, I feel like my approach is what sets me apart from other people, although plenty of people do mashups, but I feel like the way that I think about combining these elements is distinctive. I don't know what else I have in my arsenal that is as distinctive. Um, and I also enjoy doing it. Um, I, I really, I mean, Terms was great because it let me parody a lot of artists I'd never approached before. And that was the other thing that was a little frustrating about my previous approach was, you know, Masterpiece was made over 20 years. There's 12 different styles, well, 15 maybe, that are kind of addressed or played with. Um, but Terms let me play with like a hundred different styles, literally. And that was, that was very liberating and very exciting. And I was able to like parody or pay homage to artists younger than me, which I had never really done before. So it just sort of let me kind of reach out broad, more broadly to the world, which is, I guess, maybe that's what all my three last books have been like, sort of like looking out into the world a little more broadly. Do you tire of a, a style when you're working in it for too long, when, when you're doing like a masterpiece comic? Yes. I, I'm sure I've told you I have a Moby Dick adaptation in the works. Um, and I, it's 20 some pages long and it's all one style. And I, It'll, it's a fun style to work with, but it's still very labor intensive. And, and I keep putting that off. I think it's also, I, I, I think Melville has psyched me out. But, um, 
I'm looking at the I'm looking at the books over here, which I won't show you because I I don't want to reveal what the sources are. <laughs> but um, but it's certainly like it's so big and it's one style and it's like oh maybe that was too much to take on. Um, I'd still like to finish it, but um, but but terms and Constitution Illustrated and the Trump book, I was able to sort of pick a style, do it enjoy it and move on without giving too much away as far as a Moby Dick book is concerned. Are you doing it in someone else's style or are we finally going to get a glimpse of what Sikoriak style looks like? Oh, it would probably be much easier if I just did it in my own quote unquote own style air quotes, because I, I don't have a, I don't have like a developed style that I like people recognize my work in my sketches and I recognize my work in my sketches, but it's not mature. It's, it, it, I, I wouldn't say it's stunted, but it's not mature. Um, no, the, the Moby Dick, the Moby Dick comic is all in one style. Uh, I'm sure people could figure out what style it's in, but I'm not going to answer any guesses, <laughs> um, but no, it's all in one style. And, um, and, and it would be, and it will be part, it will be, would be it will be part of masterpiece comics too which i still intend to finish at what point did you realize that your style was in fact everyone else's style i mean it sounds like you spent a period of your life working in earnest to develop your own not really it's funny because when i was in school when i was at, i went to parsons i teach there now and i went to parsons uh in the 80s and i uh was also sitting in on classes at the School of Visual Arts. Art Spiegelman taught a, a, a workshop there. And because I was helping out at RAW, I was able to uh, sit in on his lectures. And then from there, I sat in on a class that Paul Karasik and Mark Newgarden taught. And that was a, a real comics class. I had lots of comics adjacent assignments at Parsons, but I never had like a concentrated comics class. By that point, I had known you know, art for a few months and I was already very immersed in RAW was really excited by what they were doing. And Raw is filled with amazing stylists. Anyway, taking that class at SVA and working on assignments, um, I realized that I was more comfortable doing parody than doing my own styles. And even though in school, I would sort of play with different styles, I'd try on different media, I didn't, different mediums. Uh, I, I, I realized I didn't, I, I, felt, I, I felt I was derivative of other people. And I thought if I was gonna be derivative of other people, I might as well be consciously derivative rather than unconsciously like a second rate version of somebody who I thought was great. Everybody's derivative when they start out though. To some extent, everyone, sure. you yeah. know, you get yeah. into comics appreciating yeah. certain art forms and that's where you start to develop your own. Yeah, well, you could say that the, the you could say the approach I took is derivative of Art Spiegelman. <laughs> Because I was so influenced by what he and Francoise were publishing in Raw. Yeah, or like, or the Garbage Fail Kids stuff, or Wacky Packages. Of yeah, just, yeah, or, yeah. And obviously, all of that is funneled in through Mad Magazine. Yes. Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm derivative of Harvey Kurtzman or Will Elder, other people. I'm who, derivative of the people who are derivative. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you, you can see in my approach, like, real clear parallels to what Kurtzman was doing, to what art has done and, and still does. You know, I, I realized, it took me a long time, but I realized my style is the way that I combine styles. And the, the, my style is the way that I put the words and pictures together, or I juxtapose the words and pictures. So I realized that became my style. And, and I'm very, and I'm known for that. I'm known as that guy, which, you know, I'm grateful for. You want to be known for something. <laughs> Well, can you break that down a little bit? What, what, what do you mean by the, the way you juxtapose it in terms of what the source material is versus, well, I guess what the two different source materials are? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a few different things. So, so uh, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> so, give, me, well, give me the elevator pitch, as we say in tech. All right, well, I'll, gi I'll give you three examples. I'll say, so, so, so in, in Masterpiece Comics, uh, I, would, I would take a literary text and all right, I'll take the, maybe the best known one that I did, which was uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis drawn in the style of Peanuts. So I took the basic plot 
And much of the dialogue from Kafka's story uh, boiled it down and, and, and combined that with the rhythms and the drawing style of uh, Schultz's Peanuts comics from the 1960s. So it was, four, it was the four panel rhythm of a peanut strip, but poured into that was the dialogue uh, and the situations from Kafka. Some of the dialogue was rewritten to sort of meet Charles Schultz's dialogue halfway, but then there's certain lines in my version that are right out of Kafka that feel like Schultz could have written them. So, so in that case, it's not just a style, but it's a, the container that it, it exists in. Yes. So my style is the way that I am slavish to my form, to the forms that I choose and then merge them together. And I think also the choices that I make, and maybe that's clearer in the literary classics that I choose. I, there, tends to be, there tends to be a lot of existential feelings in the stories I choose, or sometimes there's like a very strong moral message in a way, although sometimes I subvert that. But, uh, you know, there's, and sometimes I'll, I'll choose sources against type, but, uh, but I think the way that I put the things together is, is maybe distinctively mine. I mean, you know, I've seen other people, I mean, Peanuts has been mashed up with all sorts of things. You know, I, what I, I guess what I choose is just my interests. And, 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 that, and if you see enough of my work, you can kind of sense where I'm coming from. That was an elevator pitch. <laughs> you know, that was great. And, and, and you mentioned existentialism. And I, I want to drill down on that a little bit because, you know, now that you say that, so, you know, you've got, you've got Kafka, you have the, uh, the Camus, Superman, Stranger mashup. You've got uh, Batman and Dostoevsky. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Remembering that's right. it. So, as you're looking forward to, I don't know if looking forward, as, as you're looking into the future toward Masterpiece Comics too, there sure is a lot of Western literature about the plague. Oh boy. The Decameron, you got your Canterbury Tales. I mean, obviously like this was a very, it's a very big part of the Western canon. Is this something that you're thinking a lot about as it pertains to the current moment? Yeah, I mean, I don't see how I couldn't. I mean, the thing is about Masterpiece Comics, and this has always been true, is I have... I have about, for the second volume, I have, I have nine short stories done. Somehow I'm going to finish this Moby Dick. And then I have ideas for a couple more stories that I've been kind of dying to get to. And those will probably be in this volume. So, so the wheels on Masterpiece Comics have been spinning since you finished the first one, really. I mean, yeah, <laughs> spinning in place, but yes. Uh, spinning for sure. Um, I I was actually asked by uh, Ryan Stanfest to do a short comic for an anthology he's doing. So I'm going to be doing a super short version of Mask of the Red Death, which may be my only plague mm. uh, comic for now. It's a super short story, which is one reason I'm doing it is because I wanted to get something out quickly. And I only have two pages, so it's going to be very condensed. I would love to do the Decameron. But, um, oh, gosh, I have, so many, I have so many on my list already. I don't know when I'm going to get to them all. I mean, that's the other thing about the way I've been working lately is I've, I've been trying to make books. At least I, I, wanted to, I wanted to make more books. I wanted to make a couple of books that wouldn't take me forever in between the long ones. I was trying to think of a good analog to the, the Constitution book. And obviously, like, when people try to contextualize your work, like classic illust- Classics Illustrated comes up a lot as, like, obviously a much more straightforward adaptation. But I was thinking about Crumb's Genesis. You know, sure. obviously, like, a very different approach to the book than the Constitution book is you kind of had to walk the line between reverence for the text and also having it be fun and funny and, and satirical in a sense. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I certainly Crumb's Genesis book is so fascinating because it's so outside of what he'd done before. I, I love his short form literary adaptations, but he never taken on anything so huge. Um, and I admired that he, he got it done. <laughs> I mean, what a, what a workhorse over the years, but just to get that specific body of work done was kind of amazing. He seems like the kind of stubborn person who like is going to finish a thing regardless of everything else that happens in his life. That is true. That is true. But I mean, he has he ever done any story longer than 
20 pages. I mean, that, that was real, a real commitment. Anyway, so that was fascinating to see that from him. But it totally goes back to like Classics Illustrated. I mean, I was very happy that D&Q liked the title Constitution Illustrated. I really wanted to underline that connection. Um, and um, my books often kind of announce themselves on the cover, even if it's even if it's not always entirely accurate, but I called Terms and Conditions a graphic novel. I really wanted to call Constitution Illustrated that because I wanted to kind of evoke that old timey approach. There was a certain reverence to it. I, I, this is maybe, it's in some ways the Constitution, I'm looking over to my right because the book is sitting over there. Um, I, um, I think maybe this is more reverent than my other adaptations on one level, I always try to be faithful to the sources, but what's different about this is it is complete. Nothing has been edited out. And I dreaded including all the words because it, the sentences are so dense and so long, <laughs> but I couldn't bear to change it because people always uh, feel like it must be the original text. So I wanted to keep that. So there is a certain reverence there, but if you juxtapose the Constitution with Linda Berry or Lucy Van Pelt or, uh, or um, Principal Weatherby, <laughs> it's going to be somewhat absurd. But I let that be its own thing. It's like, even within that, if you can accept these cartoon characters cavorting through this text, um, it's still, it has a certain reverence. Doing something as just totally purposefully dry as as terms and conditions must have been a good dry run for working on the constitution. I mean, in a lot of ways, like, you know, obviously like it is, it is legalese and, and these words are, you know, hundreds of years old, but there's a lot more life in the constitution than there are in terms and conditions. Oh, for sure. I mean, what was so liberating to me about terms and conditions was that no one has an emotional connection to the text. And there wasn't a narrative that I needed to address. Maybe some Apple lawyers do. <laughs> I mean, I, I was talking to the, the I, I was talking to the poet Kenneth Goldsmith, who's like, it does have a narrative. It's like, well, your definition of narrative is much wider than most people's. I appreciate that, um, and I think that's appropriate. But um, but it, for my purposes, I didn't have to. I didn't have to visualize the narrative. I felt I didn't need to visualize the narrative. What and does he really mean? What, what does he mean by that? What was the kind of narrative that he was pointing to? There is a flow. It, it's, 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 it's lawyer talk, but <laughs> there's a flow. There is a progression. There's a sequence. It's not random words. It's not cut up poetry. It, is, it, it has a sequence that you can follow. And um, he may have been... He was being a poet about it. Yeah, and, that, and God bless him. I, I and I appreciate that. It's like that. I think that's accurate. But when I was making it, I didn't worry about that. And and ultimately, you could do a you could take a more narrative approach to the text than I did. But um, but I didn't. I felt I didn't have to. For the Constitution, I read. I reread and read the text. I looked at modern interpretations. I looked at rewritings of the Constitution for kids to see how they boiled it down, to see if I could wrap my head around it, because some passages were opaque to me. Um, I had never read the entire Constitution before I started doing this book. So I, you know, I was going into it as a, as a, as a novice, and I was trying, but I was really desperately trying to clarify with the drawings, which is not something I tried to do with terms which again was the liberty of terms, but I didn't, I didn't think it was fair to this text or useful for an audience to play that game again. And I love that game. I, I hope to do that game again. But for, the, for this book, I really, there was more reverence in terms of like, you could flip through the book and glean part of what, I, what it's about, even if it's Thor dressed as um, a Supreme Court justice holding um, a gavel rather than his hammer, you could tell it's about the, the judicial branch, <laughs> um, even if it's Thor, you know, but, but in the garb, the appropriate garb of a colonial era judge. Do you, I mean, do you consider it an educational text? I mean, you did something very savvy 
with it, which is, I think the first illustration for the preamble is, is a Raina Telgemeier homage, which it's clear to me that, that there was a hook there, <laughs> that, 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 that there is a certain subset of comics readers that you're trying to draw in with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm so excited to see what's happening in comics now. And I feel so distant from the next generation, but I really... Well, she, and she is the biggest superstar in comics, bar none. Well, that's exactly it. And I didn't want, I didn't want people to think I was just interested in stuff I grew up with or just interested in artists of my own age. So I did very consciously put her, her style in the preamble. I mean, she has a very diverse cast, so it was uh, completely appropriate to represent we the people with all of the characters from her various books dressed in colonial garb. But I, I absolutely put that first. I didn't want someone to look at the book and go like, oh, it's more, it's more grainy old comics <laughs> with a grainy old text. You know, I think now that, we, now that we're maybe getting bookstores again, People may flip through it rather than start at page one, but I wanted page one of the actual text to be something where people felt like, oh, I'm not excluded from this. I made a, a serious effort with this book to be as inclusive as possible. And as I finished it, I was like, oh, I wish I had five more artists from this era, or I wish I had more of this kind of artist or... You know, you know, this genre or this style, like you could swap out different artists in some pages, but I made a very concerted effort to make sure that if you picked up this book, no matter how many comics you'd ever read, or even if you just saw cartoons on TV, you'd recognize something in this book and go like, oh, I remember that. I watched that as a kid or last week. This isn't, this isn't alien to me. I really wanted to feel like America. It's like, this, if this is the melting pot, if America is the melting pot, I wanted my book to be the melting pot. Are these considerations that you've had before? I mean, especially like, I know commercial is kind of a dirty word, but like you are literally thinking about people as they pick it up in a bookstore and, you know, if, if they're going to purchase it and keep reading it. Are these things that you've thought about in that respect with your past books? Not quite. I mean, certainly whenever you package a book, you're thinking about commercial considerations. I don't think... And commercial sort of seems like a dirty word, but comics are a commercial medium. And I, and I don't think it's wrong to think of an audience, especially with a book like this. I mean, I think, I, think with, I think with this book more than any other, I was trying to make it accessible, which is adjacent to commercial, but I don't know if it's exactly the same thing. I, I, this is a valuable text for people to read I wanted it to be inviting. So I think, I think it's kind of of a piece. You know, I, I got one of my earliest jobs was working for Topps Bubblegum. So commercial projects, I mean, as, as, bizarre as, as bizarre as commercial is applied to what Topps Bubblegum novelty candy toys used to mean, it's still like, that is part of what, where I'm coming from. And I think that that's, I think that's a, I think that's an important part of um, putting something out in the world. I alluded to this earlier, but it's something that you can't divorce from Art Spiegelman's work it, right. or, or Mark Newgarden right. or any of these right. people who are like doing wacky packages right. Right. or garbage shell kids, you know, in the same way, I, you know, this is actually something that hadn't quite occurred to me until I'm saying this out loud right now. But when we talk about Charles Schultz, and the genius of Charles Schultz as an artist, it was, you know, it was what he was able to do with a uh, minimal number of strokes and, and really like tailored to the format of mass production in the newspaper. But a lot of these underground cartoonists of a certain age who came up through Raw really cut their teeth doing the, this really highly commercial work. Or even like, like Crumb. Crumb was, Crumb was doing greeting cards. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, it's... And it, I don't know. I don't know if comics are a mass medium anymore, but they were a mass medium. I mean, I think in some ways they're still a mass medium. It's hard to know what, I don't know what media means anymore, but that's okay. I don't need to. In, in so far as anything is a mass medium when, when everything is fragmented. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's exactly right. So yeah, I, I, I think that's, I think that's part of it. Um, but, but yeah, just to, just to sort of reiterate, I wanted 
people to see themselves in the book. Let's dig in that a little bit more. Um, you know, inclusion is an interesting word, and it is obviously a word that people are using a lot these days to mean a lot of things. Um, and, and this is something, again, that I notice in this book versus, you know, probably anything else that you've done. Excuse <clears throat> me. Inclusion meaning not only like age groups, but also uh, the backgrounds of the artists who are making it. I mean, it does seem like you made a more concerted effort to include African-American artists, for example. For sure. For sure. Um, you know, the, the, uh, a distinction between this and terms and conditions was that terms was like worldwide comics. For Constitution Illustrated, I really wanted to focus on American comics solely. Um, there are artists in here who, who are drawing uh, United States characters, <laughs> which I didn't realize when I started doing it. But, you know, like, so the Ms. Marvel drawing is actually by someone who lives in England, but the character is American. She lives in New Jersey. <laughs> uh, what's more American? So, so, yes, I was really, I wanted to make sure that there was diversity in it. I wanted to make sure that, that again, I mean, whether it's, whether it's like age groups or, 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 or other, other groups that people put themselves in, whether it's gender or race, I really was trying to make sure that everybody was in there somehow. Um, it was very, very considered. I, I would, I was, I mean, I was, I was, um, I was trying to, yeah, I mean, I was actually like counting. I was like, do I have enough? of this group or that group. And I, and I think I, I don't, there's still too many white guys in it, but I tried really hard. <laughs> I think people will be happy that, um, I think people, and I think people will at least see an effort was made um, to, to be inclusive. I made this book in about 13 months from start to finish. I mean, luckily I didn't have to write it, <laughs> but the number of lists I made of like artists broken down by different categories, by decades, by genre, yeah, it was a, a lot of, a lot of work. And then to, and then to sort of fit those artists into texts that where I thought it could somehow evoke or, or enlighten part of the text was super important. So I have Jackie Orms in here, uh, who, who was a pioneering uh, African-American cartoonist uh, and who had a couple of long-running strips. Um, and, you know, there's, there's elements, I mean, there's por portions of the text about slavery, even if they don't say slavery, it's about slavery. So being able to um, get in more Black cartoonists on those pages, and not just there, but in other pages as well, was super important to me. You had to get Luke Cage. I mean, you, like you couldn't not, right? And that must have just been one of the things that the minute you sat down, you knew you knew you had to do. Right. And when you have, I knew it was going to be, I thought it might be 70 pages. It ended up being like 115 pages. But when you have, even even when you only have 70 pages to do, it's like any idea that comes to you that makes sense, grab it. So yes, I instantly knew Luke Cage and I was able to include... Um, the first black artist who worked on him, whose name is Billy Graham. Uh, who, I love his Black Panther stuff. I wasn't as familiar with his Luke Cage stuff, but, um, but I, was, I was grateful to get him in, in there. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's a lot of things like that. Doing a book based on Trump quotes is going to be inherently political. Do you think that just the act of doing a comic based on the Constitution is also by its nature political? I suppose it has to be. I mean, I, I, I mean, honestly, I did this book. I thought of doing this book right after I finished the Trump book and I put it aside. I wish I'd started sooner, <laughs> but maybe it was better for me letting it percolate in the back of my head. I mean, you were living with Trump for so long. Yeah, I needed to do something else. I still wanted to speak to the moment. I didn't want to do something that was so topical. It would be irrelevant by the time it was published. And certainly you are probably thinking, well, the constitution may be irrelevant soon, but um, I say to those people, I say, well, it's a nice keepsake. And we had it for a, a good number of years. A good and, souvenir of the country. Yeah, it's nice, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a memento. So anyway, um, the constitution was a way to sort of address what was happening without overtly addressing it. I didn't want to draw, I didn't want to draw any uh, living or dead politicians in it. 
Um, but you know who, you can make your own associations. The other thing that's great about it, which of course is undeniable, unfortunately, is that when Obama was president, people were saying, he's destroying the constitution. So it's, it's a political act to make it, I suppose, but it also uh, isn't just from my side of the aisle. That being said, people, <laughs> people of other political persuasions may think I made it too diverse. <laughs> Let's go back to that idea of, of narrative. You know, obviously, like, it's kind of a funny and maybe a little bit, in a sense, kind of flip, uh, flip comment to say that terms and conditions are uh, narrative in their nature. But do you get the sense of the Constitution being a narrative? Is, is there kind of a, a storyline inherent in the text? Absolutely. It's, t- there, it, it's subtle, but it's there. Now, I, I've maybe disguised it more by uh, juxtaposing comics from different eras against the text. But the text of the Constitution is a living document, they say. And so what, happened at, what happens, or what's mentioned in it at the beginning still applies to us today, which is why I thought I could, I could put Raina in include Raina's characters in the beginning, even though you'd think she'd be at the end because that's today. That, was that the initial conceit to do it sort of more chronological? I, I considered doing it chronologically so that the first pages of the book would be the oldest cartoonists and the last pages would be the newest. But that presented a few problems, one of them being that syncing up the characters with the drawings would have been that much harder and also I knew as much as I want to look at 1920s comic book artists I would probably lose a big part of the audience if the first if the first 50 pages of the book were from 1900 to 1950 and you don't think the cats and jammer kids and the yellow kid are gonna help the book fly (laughs) off the shelves no no and I mean again I mean it's I mean we do say we do say fly off the shelves and that's legitimate but it's also just like you could pick up the book and flip through it and, and look for characters you like and they're, and they're scattered throughout. But to get back to your point about um, the narrative, the narrative that is super clear in the constitution is, and maybe it's easier to see in when there's pictures attached to it, but while they don't talk about enslaved people, the line about three fifths of a person, the three fifths of other persons, quote unquote, that that refers to enslaved people, but does not say the word, that is on page nine of my book. So you see from the beginning, and if you think of the text as following a narrative, you see from the beginning this horrible, horrible compromise that's been made and like baked in. The great thing about the Constitution is that you can see the flaws because unlike the terms of Apple, they don't get re- re- rewritten and erased. The, the bad stuff is still in there. So if you're reading it as a narrative, you have to flinch as you get to the parts that you like. And the, the beauty of it is that as soon as they wrote the Constitution, they were like, yeah, let's ratify this, but we got to start amending it. <laughs> so the Bill of Rights, which were written like four or five years after the Constitution and are included here, uh, were written and started giving more rights to the people. So if you read the book as a narrative, and if you read it sequentially, you see them setting up the government and, and, and like, like brushing some people aside, setting up the government, brushing off problems till later. There's a, few, there's a few lines about how this can't be changed until 20 years from when this is written. So there's like lots of lines at the beginning interspersed with the good ideas about representation and the good ideas about how to break up the government into different pieces and have, uh, and have a separation of powers, all that stuff that is in there and you see it being developed. And if you read it as a narrative, you see that growing and, and starting to bloom. And then you get to the Bill of Rights and then the amendments and you see more definition about where the rights of the people are and the rewriting of the constitution sometimes it's about the way the electoral college works sometimes it's about the way you know how we count people 
<laughs> slavery isn't mentioned until the, as a word, isn't mentioned until the amendments. So if you're reading this, you see that, and, it's, and maybe it's a narrative of the people who wrote it, but that's meta enough for me, <laughs> that you see, the narrative of the, you see the narrative of the country growing. They didn't mention the word because they knew it was something to be ashamed of. I can only assume. I can only assume. Like, they didn't want to say it, but they had to address it. Yeah. Which isn't really a good way. <laughs> no, no. But it was like, it was like we know that this is, some, this is something that we're going to have to deal with. If you contextualize the Constitution as being a narrative, then, you know, I think it's like, it's like a prestige drama, right? It's like The Sopranos, where something happens in season one that doesn't pay off until season three. Like that's, that's really right. good storytelling, right? Is, right. is something right. over here that really, you know, really down the road is, is when you see that the connections sort of start, start to take place. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing and the way it's different than the Sopranos is hopefully it won't end with a blackout. We can still amend it, which I, I'm, I, as I was writing it, people were talking about the Equal Rights Amendment again, and I thought they better hurry up and they better hurry up and ratify that if they want it, because I got to figure out what the last eight pages of the book are. So I'm happy to continue updating this because <laughs> we could use more amendments. I mean, it is like a prestige drama, and the good thing is we hopefully within our lifetimes we don't have to worry about the ending because endings are always hard to stick. They're always disappointing. So hopefully we can, we can uh, move it forward and, and, and amend it further. 